0: Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. And don't worry, today's episode is not primarily about chargebacks. I know that the last few weeks have been a little chargeback heavy, but I hope that you've learned a lot and you've appreciated that. It's definitely got a topical issue with Visa most recently announcing their rule changes that will go into effect April of 2023 for fraud-coded chargebacks. If you're not aware of what I'm talking about, go back to this past Thursday's episode from July 7th, where I really provided a deep dive of what Visa said, my interpretations of it, how I believe that it will impact the recovery of first party slash friendly fraud chargebacks going forward beginning in next April as well as if I you no know, agree with them that their changes are going to greatly reduce the number of friendly fraud chargebacks and claims in the ecosystem. Obviously, they're strictly my opinions and my interpretations, but hopefully it's helpful. I did provide resources in the show notes to go to the source to find out their direct message as well. But that's something that I know a lot of people had confusion over. I received a lot of questions after the webinars came out. And so I just felt I'll give like a deep dive. Someone I know in the industry suggested that I charge for that in a webinar format. And I was like, you know, yes, I totally could. And if that's something anyone's interested in, let me know. But I feel like it's also just really important information to get out. And if it's gonna help you do your job better, then I feel like I've done my job. The job maybe that I've given myself, but you guys have been so encouraging for me to keep going. So here I go. <laughs> and then last Tuesday, Dominic Squio, who is my guest today as well, joined me to talk about chargebacks. But the way that we have seen them work from really a holistic approach that allows you to prevent friendly fraud from ever being claimed. Not all friendly fraud by any means, but definitely reduce it by quite a lot as well as so you're decreasing your overall losses and you're increasing customer happiness and satisfaction as well as you're learning from it end to end. So that is a system that I put in place for a very large online travel agency several years ago. And then if you listened to Tuesday's episode that a few years later, Dominic started working in the department that I created there and learned, you know, about my chargeback methodology that way, without totally knowing that it was me. I mean, I think he kind of did, but not really. And I guess I didn't have a podcast then either, so it was like, okay, whatever. This is. And he assumed, and rightfully so, because it was his first job working with chargebacks, that that was how every merchant did it. He has shared that that is how he has set up his chargeback programs at the merchants he worked at afterwards, which makes me so proud. But it was just a really fun conversation. And I asked him to come back because over the last five years, Dom has been working in the iGaming and gambling space. This is a space that is growing extremely rapidly in the U.S., which obviously means there are more jobs available in fraud and risk and compliance, as well as, you know, solution providers looking at that vertical and wondering if expansion makes sense, if their product would have value to those merchants and obviously vice versa. So I know it's something that a lot of you have been curious about, and I've been wanting Dominic to come on the podcast to talk about this for quite some time. But he wasn't able to until recently, because up until recently, he was the director of fraud investigations at DraftKings. He is now a risk consultant with Eilers and Um, They're a consultancy that specializes in working with iGaming and gambling merchants in different stages of their fraud and risk growth. And they also advise solution providers on how to enter this complex and unique market. So this week, Dom's back to share some of his experiences and expertise in this really unique vertical. And I don't just say that, like within, and Dom talks with this a little bit at the beginning to it. within e-commerce, sure, there's retail, there's digital, and then you can go down even deeper to, you know, in digital, there is gaming, but not gambling, right? So playing like video games and things like that. There's ticketing, there's travel, et cetera, right? And then within physical goods, there's retail. And then within retail, there's so many different, right? But within those, whether you go from a quick service restaurant to a luxury goods merchant, there are definitely some nuances and some differences in the type of fraud that they see and the way the company is run and all of that. But they're not as vastly different as in gambling. And you will be hearing all about that in a minute. I honestly didn't know a ton about it. I probably knew enough to kind of be dangerous, but definitely not as much as Dominic. So It was really great to learn from him today. And so just a little bit of background, it wasn't until the last five years that online gambling was no longer prohibited in the U.S. So while no longer federally illegal, each individual state has the option of legalizing online gambling within their state. And as we'll learn, they also going to create their own regulations for each state. So that doesn't sound like fun to me. But it seems like Dominic just has it memorized in his head of what state has what. And I guess it's like anything, right? You learn and then you adjust and then you go do what you're supposed to do. We kind of are able to adjust and maneuver. I mean, we don't always want to, but we have to, whether it's changes in technology or whatever. So... I guess regulations are similar, but that's something that most of us, unless you work for a fintech or a bank, don't really have to deal with. I think e-commerce has been spoiled in that way, but also it's caused its own set of problems. So there's good and bad to everything. But these regulations, as well as the fact that people are gambling actual money, opens up a lot of unique challenges and opportunities for fraud prevention. So, in this conversation, Dom will talk about some of the nuances among various types and business models of online gambling sites and the core fraud threats that they often face. He'll also talk about some of the unique challenges and opportunities of complying with various state regulations. And he'll talk about how vendors often underestimate the complexity of selling to this market and some of what needs to be considered. So, obviously, this is going to be an awesome conversation. I am just so grateful for all of the just very intelligent fraud fighters that I know that are able to come on this podcast and share just little bits of their knowledge. I know it goes a long way. And also to the fraud fighters who would love to come on the podcast, but just can't because of communication teams and other restrictions. And I totally understand. But hopefully one day you'll be able to share your brilliance with the Fraudology listeners, because I will always believe that everyone has something to share with the community. So with that, I'm gonna let you listen in on my conversation with Dominic Squeal and I'll talk to you soon. Dominic, I am so happy to welcome you back this week. Last week, we talked about one of the focuses on your career toward the beginning was chargebacks and we really bonded on that because we have very similar thought processes and methodology in part because you got to work on the process and product that I created at Expedia. So that was fun for me. But this week, I'm looking forward to getting to having you share some of the, your experiences and lessons you learned more recently. Fraud and risk in the iGaming and gambling space. This space is obviously growing very quickly, especially in the US. And so we really wanted to have you talk more about that. Just diving right in. Yeah. yeah, I was like, do I stop there? Do I ask the question? But what? made you first interested in iGaming. Can you share a little bit about your trajectory within this growing industry? When you shared about your career path as a whole last week, really specifically when you started working for b and then all that, and then maybe a little bit of the nuances of those particular companies, because I know there's different types of gambling and gaming.
1: Yeah, definitely. I guess going back in time, what we talked about, obviously, on my starting points at Expedia and, and specifically Chardbacks, and I would say e-commerce in itself across the board, is obviously going to be, we'll say, the same, right? There's consistencies with a lot of companies, whether they're, in this case, like Expedia selling travel or BetMGM or DraftKings, you know, offering gambling services, e versus Really, in a nutshell, there's the same concepts, but, you yeah, know, I would say at that time, I literally was in, in that moment, we'll say, of looking for opportunities in the e-commerce space. And it really presented it as more of just that. And so going back, we'll say to the East Coast, and back at that time and I joined the company that was basically beat when not partied, you know, and I really didn't think of it any other way. So there was nothing that I could say beyond the e-commerce, we'll call it continuing on the e-commerce fraud track. I couldn't say that there was anything different, but I did obviously say, you know, it would be nice and really cool to really see it in, in a form like, Gambling, and I, for one, sometimes I'll I'll go play at a casino. So I can I could really understand what would it be like when it's online, and how would you actually see fraud unfold online? And that was really my interest. That's really what drove me there. And when I joined B That Party, and I'm being specific with that because I was the name changes that occurred afterwards. New Jersey was the only state offering online casino or online gambling. And it was just casino at the time and poker. And it was a few companies that were out there in New Jersey. And so I will always say like we were the first hundred, you know, we joke around partners and colleagues and friends that I've worked with in the industry is that the folks that started in New Jersey were really the first you know, we'll call it hundred, as I would say, that really were part of what is now a really, really big industry and it's just continuing to grow. So it's good to highlight that, but for the record, e-commerce fraud and gambling have a lot of similarities, but then there's a lot of nuances and a lot of different intricacies that really can can make this really cool, but also really complicated as well.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think actually it's very honest too, because it would be easy to say, oh, I read something or I am psychic and believed that this industry and gaming in the US would expand. And so I strategically went to this company, but I actually, when you were going to be moving back East, for personal reasons, I think that's when you reach out to me first and we kind of realized yeah. that we had this overlapping piece of our career, you know, that kind of had in common. And as you were saying that, I was remembering, oh yeah, it wasn't, he wasn't saying you wanted to go into gaming specifically. It was, I'm looking for a job and I want to learn another vertical within e-commerce. And to your point, every vertical has its own nuances, right? Travel is going to have different nuances than retail, et cetera. But a lot of times you'll see people in the fraud industry just go from different vertical to different vertical. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. Like for me, when I went to Bag Bar or Steel, I mean, they were renting handbags. I don't care at all about designer names, but I loved the challenge, right? Because we weren't just selling an item and then we were expecting it to come back. And there was so much more of a challenge. So I can totally relate to that. But when you went from Bwin.party, which later became BetMGM, to DraftKings, I think that was a little bit more strategic, right? I would or just say, based on your industry experience, like, oh, I have this, so now it's more applicable here.
1: You know what? I would say that to some degree, yes, but I will say that the level of experience in the gambling industry was to a lot of companies that traditionally were overseas. And so mm-hmm. when it came to folks that that joined the industry when it was just New Jersey, a lot of that native knowledge and exposure to online gambling, how it operates and how fraud and risk, we'll say the specific operational models that gaming operators have, gaming merchants themselves have. It's it's obviously very easy to transition into to another, we'll say company that does similar things. And so yeah, you know, while strategic in some sense, I think it was also just to continue the growth and yeah. trajectory in in this space and great enough, you know, with DraftKings at the time where they were the first sports game, we'll say the first company that launched sports game for New Jersey when PASPA was repealed, which was basically the moment where states could regulate sports wagering, which is again, gambling, but it's not the same as casino and poker. And obviously we're going to get into that a little more, but that is really where it came down to is like company like DraftKings, new to the space. And so I joined and I was pretty much given the opportunity. It was a great experience to bring that knowledge and experience from my previous LSA experience from another gambling company. But at the same time with obviously the DraftKings brand in mind, which was a great privilege to to work for them.
0: Yeah. And I definitely think for everyone that listened last week, and hopefully that's everyone that's listening this week, I can very much relate to having chargebacks as the foundation of your career. And so when you're then going into fraud prevention, you're thinking about that end to end. There's no way to just think about fraud prevention from the time somebody enters the website to checkout. You're thinking of it up to three, four months out, like what can happen, what can be done. So I can see that also being very beneficial to that space.
1: Very much, very much. And, and again, I think chartbacks is, is obviously fundamental, we'll say, challenge for many merchants, I think, in the gambling space. A lot of challenges with chartbacks, but there's also a lot of, we'll say, different variables that really play into how gambling merchants can manage your chargebacks. And I think that's really what makes it, again, very unique and very much completely different than a lot of what you may see or what others may see in their time, with fraud.
0: So let's dive into that a little bit more. I think it'd be helpful at this point to kind of talk about the different types of online gaming and gambling business models. Additionally, now I'm like kind of going back a little bit, but talking about the companies that were traditionally overseas and in the UK, et cetera, a lot of them have been around for forever. Poker stars and others, but they had never been in the U.S. market. So even though some of them were starting to come over here and there were new entities in the U.S. over the last few years, there's a lot of learning curve in the U.S. That's a lot different than EU and U.K. for a lot of reasons, especially fraud. There's so much more fraud in the U.S. There's a lot more competition with issuing banks. So there's oftentimes more chargebacks and first party fraud than ever. So I imagine that that was also a learning
1: curve for a lot of the mentoring the US. Yeah. And to really go into it, I think it's really just start of I mean, how does someone sign up for an account, right? And how does someone participate in online gambling in the US? And so States that are obviously now states that are offering the ability for companies to offer gambling really dictate how it's really done. And that's really regulations. And so to start with New Jersey was a first state online that offered the ability for companies to basically offer products like casino, like poker. And then the state itself regulates how this company can actually operate. And so a lot of the challenges that in the U.S. I would say faced in the beginning was really around card acceptance, right? And so card acceptance and specifically card not present transactions, right, that would take place online on on a gambling site, were restricted by many issuing banks and and predominantly a lot of the large issuers. And so the acceptance rates for a casino online in the U.S. were a lot lower. So there was a lot of, we'll say, customers that had challenges to make their first deposit or Ooh. to basically play on a site. And with that, that also really was a connection point with chargebacks. Is that if you're not obviously able to accept a card and be able to actually make your first deposit, we'll say, or deposit on the site, then there's no fraud. And so chargebacks were a lot more unique at the Ooh. point in time because there was just not a lot of people being able to use their credit or debit cards, and we were, weren't really susceptible to that kind of fraud because of that. And so I think it's important to say well, when it comes to doing business, obviously online, and when you're looking at cases where you're not able to accept credit cards or debit cards because you're a high-risk merchant, mm-hmm. in this case gambling, then the fraud problems really don't exist. So right. the chargeback problems really don't come don't to come Because to you're accepting other forms of payment, right? A-C-H. Possibly crypto, other things like that that don't have the issue in banks making those decisions. Exactly, and so that and that's what makes the the gambling space very unique is that. You're not just traditionally just going straight through with a card and just transacting on the site. You're having options like ACH, like online banking, like prepaid cards, cash, you know, at a retail location and even gift cards at some point. And so the amount of options that, that a customer has to gamble, to place their wager, to play poker, to enter into a fantasy contest are so vast, And sunk so the card We'll say presence is really important, but it's also not the only option that's offered. And so you're dealing with a lot of other risks that are involved with some of those other options, which are unique, again, to the gambling industry.
0: Hmm. That's a really good point. Has that changed as more states in the U.S. have started to adopt it? Have the Has the issuer acceptance of those cards changed? Because I would imagine it would because issuers are balancing between wanting to mitigate risk while also taking, I think the way they would put it is enabling their cardholders to make purchases where they want to purchase.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I mean, if they make a little interest
0: or interchange on the top, that's just an added bonus for them of course. (laughs)
1: Exactly. There's obviously business involved. The gambling industry has obviously been lucrative for a lot of U.S. companies that are looking to participate. And, you know, issuing banks, obviously, over time, started to get more comfortable. And the business opportunity is obviously really great for an issuing bank. But I would say, to answer your question, over time, as it became more mainstream, and it seems to be mainstream, card acceptance has started to increase. We see a lot of banks that were traditionally, I will say, not accepting cards for gambling, where now accepting cards, and I think to this point, and I say moving forward, I continue to see that being the trajectory. And so the we'll call it again the fraud and the chargeback problems that were not once as prevalent now have pretty much become more prevalent over time as then access to using cards has become more fraudsters have been able to now take advantage of. It. <laughs>
0: Yeah, right. You know, more legitimate people can use cards, so can fraudsters. I but there's also me. other ways that fraud can happen on other payment types, too, which, I mean, we could spend a long time talking about, but we'll, I think, throughout this conversation, that will come up, but... You've already mentioned a couple of the different types of iGaming and gambling, and that's something I wanted to just kind of check in with you on. I've kind of gotten confused over the years in working with different companies between, as you mentioned, like the fantasy sports. And I know that was that came because there wasn't really an allowance for the actual sport. Wagers weren't allowed, but fantasy could, drew a couple of loopholes. I remember working with DraftKings and then the other company that just as popular that made its name in that space around that time. Yep. In fact, when the ruling came about allowing more gambling in the U.S. and New Jersey and then other states as well, that law that I can't remember what you called it, but that came through. Lobby. What
1: is it? I think it's, oh, you mentioned lobby, right? Lobbying. Yes. Yeah, yeah,
0: lobbying <laughs> and all that. We were at Card Not Present Expo when that decision came out allowing gambling in the US. And the other company that competes with DraftKings a lot was at the conference and they were so excited. They were like, oh my gosh. I mean, excited, but also nervous because they knew it was going to open up a whole bunch of things for them. Yeah. But so, yeah, if you could share a little bit about like the differences in the business models within iGaming and gambling, because I like, think yeah. you use the term iGaming or gambling for everything from casinos and cards and, you know, whether it's Texas Hold'em or which I used to enjoy, Blackjack or other. And then there's the casino ones, the actual gambling. Then there's the sports wagering. Then there's the Fantasy. So, what are just some of the differences on those?
1: Yeah, and, and to touch on one you mentioned earlier, this this will be a, a great segue. Is really around you know fantasy sports, right? And so the obviously the interpretation of certain aspects in this case like fantasy sports is that I would say it's a game of skill or a game of chance. And so to really explain fantasy sports, it's really a game of skill, and really it comes down to the fact that there has to be some will say analysis, some we'll call it strategic input that takes place. And so to really explain fantasy sports in the game is that participants enter into contests and what they're doing is they're basically creating lineups. And these lineups are created with analysis to determine what players they would like to choose to basically have the highest probability of success, meaning to have their lineup be successful and allow them to basically win pools in this case with public contests. So entering into contests in the public pool, meaning that you're basically playing against the group that's in that pool and you're playing for, we'll say in this case, not a jackpot, but a prize, right? And so that particular part of we'll call it more so not just iGaming, but fantasy sports is that there are players we'll say customers that do play fantasy sports. And they're using a lot of strategies and and input and analysis to really decide on what is the best opportunity for them to put in their best lineups and really, we'll say, try to maximize their rewards or potentially win a a big prize. And so fantasy sports, daily fantasy sports has become more of a, a mainstream really because of the entertainment to basically consolidate, we'll call it a season long contest that many know, like you're playing every day and you're. Team is playing every day, and you're making changes every day to ultimately win, we'll say, the championship in this case, as might even w- would do. But daily fantasy sports is pretty much t- taken that and concentrated and allowed it to be done in a more, we'll say, frequent fashion. And other than that, there's obviously other companies that are offering fantasy sports, and they might offer different, we'll say, styles of the game, but with most of them public pools to win a, a large prize or even head to head, which is basically let's say me and you, Chris, would want to play on a contest, we can select our whole lineups and play against each other. And basically, obviously, in this case, we would put real money to play against each other. And so that's really the basis for that. Whereas when we go down to what is the game of chance, online gambling, casinos, slots, and table games where traditionally you'll play at a casino are basically gaming. And so those are games that obviously have a probability where You win or lose, but they're not dictated by a skill or a strategy or some form of, we'll say, an edge or an advantage in a a sense. And sports wagering, again, similar to other products in this fashion, you're taking some of this analysis, but you're really taking a chance to see who's going to win that game or who's going to score more points. And poker is another game similar to that. playing the strategies, but you're also playing against a group of people you don't know. And so there's still not an advantage and still not a point where you can actually have some sort of probability to win against it. And so that's the differences right there. But again, with online casino, online sportsbook, and poker, these are all categorized as gambling, whereas fantasy sports is a game of skill
0: interesting. So I would imagine that in each of those, there's nuances and risks and all of that. And obviously we can't get you to download your entire brain in an hour, but it's helpful to understand those differences. And so the other thing we've kind of talked a little bit about how regulation has impacted this actually in a good way, right? Regulations have allowed gambling to grow and happen within the US, obviously. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how that's where we're at right now. So video games online have been in an international pastime for decades. Gambling online has been around for years in the EU and UK, et cetera, and other places in the world as well, Asia, et cetera. But now again, kind of mostly talking about the US, you've really had a front row seat to the growth, as you just talked about. So where is the online gambling space at now in the US, like, where is it legal? How is legality assessed based on specific states? I mean, if I don't live in a state that allows gambling, can I gamble like all those things just because <laughs> I know that also plays a part in fraud fighting regulations Very
1: much. too, right? Very, very much. I mean, I think for many of us we've lost count, if I had to guess right now, I think we're about nineteen states right now, give or take, that offer some form of online gambling. When we talk about fantasy sports, that's obviously a lot more broader. There's a lot more states that offer the ability for companies to offer fantasy sports in the specifics with New Jersey being the first state, the whole state started to follow and it continued. And really the starting point for regulations and to really clarify what regulations are. It's really to ensure that consumers are protected, offering a safe environment for customers to play, to ensure that they're able to play on the site. That gives them the, we'll call it the guardrails, the safety nets. And really from a fraud perspective, yeah, regulations really ensure that companies are doing the right thing when it comes to protecting the company and protecting the public as well with, you know, in this case, financial crimes, like, financial fraud with stolen credit cards, identity theft and, and things of that nature. And so each state goes through obviously processes. There has to be a lot of legwork done from we'll say from the government side, right, of a state, right? The state governments themselves and and how they would regulate. How they would adopt it, what kind of, we'll say, rules that they would impose, meaning what regulations they would impose on a particular company and beyond that, and so that process can take a long time. And so, companies like, we'll say, DraftKings or BetMGM, they're really positioning themselves to really expect and wait for legislation to occur, regulations to follow, and then ultimately allowing companies to then sign up. And then that really is where where it comes out to. This an operator, a casino or a sports book, is going to go through their own process, their own requirements to get licensed and be able to offer it legal. And each state dictates that. And with that, to answer the question around, if you live in one state that doesn't offer, but you go to another state it does, a lot of the regulations that require that form of detection, like to detect where you are, are really the foundations for basically dictating whether you can play or not. And that's part of geolocation. Geolocation Pretty much is basically determining at the point in time you're registering and logging in, you know, for, we'll say for the first time and making your first, you know, bet or placing a wager or playing on a site. The geolocation technologies that are required to basically allow you to play in that particular jurisdiction would, would also be part of fraud prevention. And so these solutions are very sophisticated. They can detect and really to the closest proximity, know exactly where you are every single time you're you're participating on a site to really ensure that you're playing in the state that's regulated, that you're obviously able to play in that state with age, right? And so all of these things really come part of how we manage, we'll say, gambling in the US.
0: So I guess I'm trying to figure out if regulations help fraud fighting or make it harder, or both. But I mean, in that case, especially that example, like, yeah. you know, I mean, we see a lot of people using proxies and VPNs. I would imagine that it, the technology you're talking about actually can go through that and a proxy pierce or whatever and see where it is. Or so is that helping? Is it hurting or is it kind of a mix of both?
1: No, I mean, in this case, to be very specific, a lot of these technologies do have vast you know, capabilities to detect those anomalies, remote connection, VPN, jailbreaking phones, spoofing software, and so forth. And so that's really part of like regulations themselves and the regulators that manage will say, you know, in this case for a state, they're going to require that these technologies are doing everything they can and are offering these solutions in a way that really will say mitigate or will say prevent that from occurring. And so part of all of this really comes down to then again, when you log in into your app and you're playing on a site, that information is being will say sent to these solutions and basically being able to determine are you at the place where you can play? And for instance, in the case like myself, if I go to New Jersey and I go and log in, the systems are going to basically check my IP, my GPS. i really create that proximity, but they're also going to check to see if I have any malicious software that's basically spoofing my location or whether I'm on VPN. And these are things that are really built and designed to really ensure the safety, but also ensure that we're up compliant with each and every state.
0: So that's, that's helpful because I mean, definitely in fraud prevention, I think there are some companies that are getting much better at that. There isn't as much of a need because we aren't regulated to have specific providers or specific technology to be used. So within fraud prevention, do you feel like overall those, I mean, this regulation obviously can help you with fraud, right? Because obviously if you have people overseas, it's more or less easier to identify that, that they're trying to get in. But do you find that that is, I guess, one of the reasons I ask is because I don't know how long e-commerce won't be regulated, right? Like, Fair. I mean, it's just, it's hard to know. So like, is it something that you're like, oh, I this actually helps us fight fraud and helps us have less? Or is it kind of a push pull where- it depends on the situation, the business model, the technology, et cetera.
1: Well, it, it definitely does. And, and really, in all cases, fire prevention is somewhat of a requirement for many, we'll say, states. It is part mm-hmm. of regulations. And really also beyond that, when it comes to protecting, we'll say protecting consumer, protecting the public, there's a really important part in that is that if you're not playing on a legal regulated site and you're playing, we'll say a gray market site, for instance, right? you're not having those same protections, right? So consumers are going to go in and place their wagers with, with a site that's that's not regulated. What is the safety net? Like, are they actually doing fraud prevention? Are they actually being able to locate where you are and that someone's not trying to take over your account? Or better yet, are you using a credit card that actually belongs to you? And so a lot of the regulations to some degree have that in place and really try to, like we're saying, sure, that is in place as well. And I'll even use an example. Like a few years ago, we had one operator in Tennessee that had some issues where there was some fraud issues involved and their license was suspended. And that's really, again, going back to the insurance that playing on legal regulatory site, you really are getting the protections of those, we'll say, state regulators themselves and the actual regulations themselves to really ensure that your information is protected and you're able to play safe.
0: Well, in a way, I think that that's great I mean we could argue the whether we think in the, it's, it's almost it pretty much is a political view now right if regulation's yeah. good or not or whatever and that's not the path I'm trying to go down but more yeah. from a fraud perspective so speaking of fraud what are some of the biggest fraud challenges and or use cases that online gambling and iGaming sites experience
1: I will want to describe like what it is an online gambling account right and so it has a lot of we'll call the similarities to like a financial institution right and and so, when you're creating an account, you're registering for the first time, you're entering your name, your address, your date of birth, or your social security number as well. And so, you're going through this verification, this onboarding, just like you would similarly with a financial institution. Oh. And then, as far as how you interact with like gambling and sites, we'll say sites that are offered in the US, you really interact in like an e commerce, right? Like an e commerce company. If you're playing, let's say, slots and you're depositing $20 and you lose, deposit under $20. And so a lot of the risks that come in from a gambling perspective are really down to two things. It's really identity theft and financial fraud through stolen credit cards or some form of fraud financially. And what we've seen, you know, I would say over time is that there is obviously, you know, a play where when it comes to identities, right, especially if you're signing up online, you're really not seeing the person, but the information that's being passed is being verified and ensured that person is in fact, that person, their SSN belongs to them. And where we see, again, most of this fraud that I would say is common, it's really common to identity theft and really common to financial fraud. And whether a combination of either or respectively separately, then it really is where a lot of the fraud we will say Fraud risk management comes in for an operator, how we view, how we evaluate risk is really unique to components of identity and what payments need. So you are
0: from, it is similar on that end with identity and things like that. Are you seeing synthetic identity fraud? Are you seeing account takeovers or is it pretty specific to accounts and transaction fraud?
1: Yeah. I would say we see a combination of both and I will say expand on that. It's more so online gambling is real cash, right? And Mm. real money gaming as I would say. And and so, fraudsters now that the access to online gambling is is a lot more in the U.S. There's a lot more opportunity, and and fraudsters will you know would see this as a way to monetize. And so, in cases like this, what we've seen is really again similar aspects to e-commerce with regards to account takeovers and stolen credit cards and using those on the site. But what also is really you know important to say is that there's obviously a lot of other factors that really involve the sophisticated strategies that fraudsters take to actually commit fraud. Because in order for monetization to occur, for a fraudster to really gain something from the site is really to be able to take the money out of the site. And so what we've learned over time, and obviously industry started to grow and we'll say volume starting to increase is that how we manage risk, we're really managing risks against friction. And we're really trying to obviously avoid that friction, as we will say, as much as possible. And so, fraud has come in as more of exploiting the friction. I would say the lack of friction, but again, lack of friction really is down to consumer. I would say customer experience, right? Being able to have that person be able to get on the site as fast as possible, put in money as fast as possible, being having a great experience. And, and I think a lot of the problems that we're facing today is similar to probably like early stage e-commerce and. When at that time, companies were really familiar with the fraud, then again, was probably not as common. Gambling merchants, operators themselves, are starting to see some of what is the early stage of the e-commerce world years ago. And I'm sure there's a lot of specifics that I would know, love to talk about, but obviously, to keep this more general, I, I definitely want to give you more, more of those, like, say, examples, you know, one by one.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I the type of company or the vendors that you work with and rely on are critically important because you and I have both been in this industry long enough to know that not all of them are the same. They aren't all the same quality, even if they say all the same things or they seem like they're the same. And you talk to enough of your peers in the industry and you start to go, oh, okay. Yeah. So this company says they do that, but they don't really. I mean, I, Just there was a conversation in one of the groups that I am a part of just this morning about that. And so it happens a lot. So I would imagine that that's really important, too. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about advice for solution providers soon, because you, of all people, know that is a space that a lot of them want to get into. But a lot of them are naive to know how, because there are a lot of differences because of the regulations and others. So we'll table that for a second. As far as other types of losses beyond hostile fraud or stolen payment methods and or stolen identities and synthetic identities. What are some other types of losses that come up either because of regulations or it doesn't matter, right? I mean, I think there's some that, I know specifically there was one you talked about last week that when we talked about self, like people taking themselves off the list because of yeah. self exclusions, that's the word. So that would be one of the things I want to know as well as like buyer's remorse. I would assume yeah. that there are people that are like, oh, I did not mean to. I mean, I did, but I thought I'd get my child's college fund back and now I yes. didn't. So what? <laughs> so like, I, I would assume that would be right with friendly fraud. But what is that? What does that look like? Well, I I
1: mean, it's great that we're we're talking about friendly fraud. I know we talked about it last week, but I think it's really unique in the the game. I'm saying the gaming industry is that Mm -hmm. friendly fraud, obviously legitimate customer purchases something or or pays for services, right? And so the online gambling industry, right, when it comes to friendly fraud, it's really geared towards, you know, what is the opportunity for a consumer to really get their money back? And so Online, in this case, is really obviously, we'll say, very susceptible to friendly fraud. And that's always been an ongoing challenge, I would say, given the amount of, we'll call it, obstacles that someone has to take to sign up for a website, to, to place their deposit, to place a wager, to be obviously geolocated constantly to ensure that they're playing in the, in the location that they're playing. But it does happen. And really down to the more focus points around responsible gaming, which is really part uh, what we do is we really want to ensure that players are able to play not only safety, but they're able to play within their means. And what we've seen over time is that the propensity to friendly fraud or chargebacks as a result of it really comes down to cases where customers may have played more than they should, you know, may have not been able to we'll say overcome losses that that they believe they could at one point. And probably gambling is really what it is. It's really down to that is really a driver of those friendly fraud chargebacks. And so what we've seen over time is that as we receive these chargebacks, in this case I'm on a gaming side, we're fighting these chargebacks, we really try to fight obviously friendly fraud with friendly fraud strategies. But we also start to really see the the nuances to that. Is that when you know customers are charging back their card deposits for instance, their card transactions? You know, there's a length of time that it takes for those same companies to actually receive those chargebacks. And and one of the unique things about online gambling is that you know at the point in time if that chargeback hasn't come in, we won't be able to know. It. And so there's some obviously. We'll say symptoms that come out of that where customer received their provisional credit. Then they're taking a provisional credit and then continuing the, we'll say, gambling on another site. Or better yet, they might use another payment option because their car was blocked for fraud. And so one of the things I think that in the gambling space and especially in, in the current state that we're in, really trying to understand the signals of a potential, we'll say, issues like this where it leads to charge back but I think it really comes down to part of ensuring that players are playing safely. And so tools that are offered to adjust limits, to adjust the time that you spend, and then offering options to self-exclude, which is what we talk about, is really to basically just tell, you know, like we'll say if I'm playing on a site, I'm like, I can't play anymore. So I'm going to now ask the site or ask the particular, will say, state to exclude me from playing so that it actually then prevents me from playing from other sites that We'll say that state that they're in on one hand. So one of the great things about, we'll say, responsible game is that we have those protections. We have those limits, but we also know that we can monitor, spend and play sometimes effectively. And chargebacks as a result of it become more of a opportunity to use that as a, a talking point to really try to ensure that players are able to play within their needs.
0: So I think that this is the only vertical I can think of where there is any kind of responsibility or duty by the merchant to ensure that The person isn't spending too much, which seems counterintuitive to the business, right? Because we know being in e-commerce that the majority of the business is focused on new customer acquisition, increasing customer spend, etc. And in this, I think it sounds like you have to walk a tightrope because if you are enabling too many people to spend too much, then the
1: regulators are going to be on you as well. Is that kind of consistent with what I'm hearing That is very consistent. And I think over time, that that will obviously be a very big talking point in the future and continuing to that, we'll say, to that path where there's going to be limitations. And to use some examples of like particular, we'll say regulations, like some states don't allow for credit cards to be used, right? And Mm -hmm. that's really specific to the product because credit cards are really borrowing from a line of credit. Whereas, if you use your debit card, you're using your own cash. And so, some states have adopted that, we'll say, model to really ensure that players are not able to leverage to be able to play, we'll say, on the site. And more so than not, like as that continues to be, we'll say, a discussion, we may see some other regulators may change their stance from even allowing credit cards altogether. And, and that's all. Again, part of like the the nuances where some states may allow you to use your credit card and some states may not. So if I go to New Jersey and I can use my credit card, but if I go to like a, like a state like Iowa, for instance, I can't use my credit card. And so those are interesting things that are basically part of that, which again, changes the way fraud is even made. You know, where one yeah. state may not offer one payment option, but another one does.
0: Wow. That sounds complex. And I know it is. That's why we're talking about it, right? That's why there are so many questions about it as well from outside, whether it's from fraud fighters on the merchant side that are thinking about moving into gaming because there's more career opportunities there yeah. as well as in crypto. I'm, I'm seeing both in those cases, but I'm going to go back for a second before we talk about it, I'm so I feel bad because I'm sure solution providers are like, wait, no, get to it. But (laughs) the whole self-exclusion part is interesting to me. And the fact that I would imagine that there would be people that would have a moment of clarity and go to the state and say, hey, please put my name on this list so that I can't gamble anymore. And that obviously I'm almost picturing it like a negative list, right? That is accessible by all gaming companies that are within that state. Does that then include? Encourage them to try to spoof their geolocation and do things that look risky because unfortunately, the gambling is associated with addiction. And Good. so there are addictive behaviors where you may have had a moment of clarity where you said, get me off. You know, it, It's essentially like telling all the bars not to let you in, right? If you're an right. alcoholic, but then you're like, but wait, <laughs> uh, I want to do it again. So what kind of behaviors do you see there?
1: I think that's really interesting that we don't usually see anywhere else? Yeah, no, it's a great question because again, when it comes to, let's say consumers that self-exclude, right? And they're no longer able to play and their information will say is, inherently in this, this called, we'll call it blacklist. And obviously there's a lot of measures in place to really prevent them from playing, you know, that's really, again, going back to really around what is friendly fraud. And so a case is where let's say that consumer gets a hold of information that's not theirs, or in some cases it's really, it's really within their household, right? Their, their spouse mm. or their kids or someone that is obviously of age and they're taking their information and use it on the website. Well, obviously that's part of a lot of the things that we do to manage risk because while that is obviously in a case where we talk about it from that perspective or whether it's an actual fraudster, there is obviously going to be fraud prevention strategies that we take to really go and actually make sure that that is, in fact, something we can detect. And so part of everything we do, I mean, what we what we do in terms of fraud prevention is we're really monitoring also devices. We're monitoring the usage of that device and whether that device has been used with another account or whether that device was seen at the same location as another device. And so we can obviously use you know, a lot of those, we'll call it data from geolocation activity to really then create, we'll say, those those controls, those systems that really prevent that from occurring. work, help us detect it in some instances. And so to say the least, you know, obviously talking about it from that particular point of view, it's really matter of what we'll say problem gambling situation where someone self spoons takes someone else's information. But it is again, going back to what fraud and prevention in this case on the gambling side is. And one of the things that I will say too, it's really a very, very complex, we'll say, level of review that takes place. And a lot of the folks that work as a fraud fighter in the gambling space, it's really a very intensive process. And there's a lot of rigorous training of the products themselves. Of how things work, about the payments, we'll say infrastructure interacts with the site. And I think what makes this really rewarding and really more so like a great growth opportunity for many is really you get to learn a lot, but you also get to investigate a lot. And that's really something that I really it resonates to me. And I'm sure for folks that I work with in the industry, it's really a testament. You know, there really are some great people that work in this industry and are really, they're having to do a lot to really get to where. It can even like understand whether this is fraud or not.
0: I can only imagine there's a lot of nuance there. Next week, I'll be talking with somebody who has been in AML compliance for crypto, and it's very investigations heavy there as well. And there's a lot that you can learn about the overall business and risks in investigations. I mean, again, the process I created at Expedia involved investigations on the chargeback side and determining is this true fraud, is this friendly fraud? And then because of that, you learn oh, this is what fraud up front looks like and this is what it doesn't look like, etc. So they all connect. It's, it's a really great way to learn is through investigations. Yeah. Okay, so not to let Solution Provide, not to push this question off anymore. I know you and I both have noticed a desire from standard fraud prevention and chargeback vendors to enter the iGaming and gambling space in the US and provide their, often it's their SaaS, their software as a service products to iGaming and gambling merchants. And I know you've, come across. this a lot, both your time at DraftKings and and now in your new role, but they're, they are not always aware of the extra requirements to do this. And I've, I've had a few conversations of those myself and I don't know enough. So I'm like, go ask Dom, but <laughs> I know that if you're not licensed, and so I know enough to know that they need to be licensed in each state, which I don't know what that involves, but it's a lot. So yeah. can you share what a solution provider would need to do to provide their technology to gambling merchants if they haven't already?
1: Well, you know, that's where I think just to really, we'll say, start generally speaking. So the barrier entry into the gaming market is really, really high, really starting with the fact that a vendor, a company that's looking to obviously do business with the companies like like a DraftKings or a BetMGM and so forth, they're having to go through a very rigorous process when it comes to actually being licensed in states where these you know, companies operate. And so each state will say has a, will say a series of requirements for obviously operators, right? To get licensed. Series of requirements for even employees where some employees have to be licensed to even actually work on something that is part of that particular state. And I'll even use that as an example, like. For me, I had to obviously be licensed in multiple jurisdictions to be able to actually work on, let's say, an account that's in New Jersey, for instance, or an account that's in Pennsylvania. And so going to the vendor side or the solutions providers themselves, like they're having to commit to those same requirements. And that obviously requires a lot of paperwork, you know, a lot of information, a lot of things that were not really as common, to say the least, like where you're having a little personal information, things that are really more personal in that regard. And I think for every solutions provider that, that's in there with, with such an underserved industry, like the gambling industry in the U.S., I think it's important to really get educated, really understand where they can fit into the market, but also when it comes to licensing, like it is an opportunity. But once you complete, we'll, we'll say these requirements for states that do require states that have that specific requirement, then I really think that there's always going to be, you know, a leg up in the industry. And yeah, and I expect and believe as more companies start to emerge, the needs are going to start to grow. And I think these barriers to entry will be more of like a formality than anything. But I think for most solutions, don't be afraid. It's not, a, it's not something that's really daunting, but I think really getting knowledgeable, being able to understand the market, how it works. And so in my new role, that's part of what I do is really trying to educate and advocate for the providers to really help them try to get into the space and help them. We'll say not only get into the space from a business perspective, but also educate them so they can really serve the industry well.
0: I happen to work with a company that I know worked with your consultancy to enter the gaming space and they credit that work a lot to be feeling like they really understand the different entities and what's needed, etc. I know they're growing in that space. Do different states actually look at what they provide and the quality of their the technology and all of that? Or is it more about being licensed in the state and having just going through paperwork and check boxes?
1: I will say, I mean, there's some some nuances and in- specifics, but I think more so than that, it's again like, you know, whatever provider, a company, an operator uses to basically manage will save risk is interacting with the site, right? It's interacting with the consumer. I would say the real reasons around it are really to ensure that These vendors are legitimate. These vendors are obviously operating, you know, in good standing and really operating in the model that they are presenting themselves at. So that's really part of the requirements to really ensure that, you know, they're onboarding companies that are are doing good business. But I think to, to say the least, when it comes to a lot of solutions providers too, as they move into the market and as they basically work with operators too, they also have to continuously keep themselves current. Technologies that can interact with the site obviously could very much change the way they actually do business and that might implicate them. But to say the least, like in some cases, like slot machines, those obviously go through some level of testing, right? The mm. actual game themselves. But I think in most cases, the solution, right? The testing is not in some way a need, but it is important for everyone to know that any changes that do occur can obviously change the way they do business.
0: Hmm. And I'm, I don't remember all the details and I think I mentioned it to you a couple of weeks ago and you didn't remember it either. And I'm not saying the company name, but I know many years ago there was a solution provider in the fraud space that got into some hot water because the founder also ran a gambling site. And with the technology that they had from fraud, they were able to cheat the system in a way, or at least had the appearance that they were cheating the system and had the appearance of impropriety, which also caused a lot of problems. And that company did a very good job at paying whoever they did to scrub the Internet of a lot of it. There's a few things you can find here and there, but these are the things that Carice does not talk about publicly because I don't want to be sued. But I can imagine that was a test case for some of these regulations and reasons for that. Wanting to understand how is data stored? What are you doing there? How are, what do you have insight on? Are you separating that out? Especially if you have other interests or other business entities. So that was several years ago before gambling was really legal in the U.S. So, I mean totally different. And like I said, I don't remember all the details. I knew them all at one point, but I know that that probably was was part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's that's something that now that you're at Eilers and and Cryjack, and I always am so afraid I'm going to say that name wrong, that they really specialize in the gambling area, both to work with merchants in that space, as well as solution providers that want to enter that space. And that has to be one of the reasons why you chose to go that way is to really make an impact with all the things you've learned.
1: Yeah. And that's more about our rule and hire project. It's really, really supporting these, we'll call it operators themselves in this case for the team, but more so like vendors as part of really helping them get to the place where they can make that decision, whether they want to pursue the gaming industry, but really also being an the advocate. And, and again, what makes us unique, and I know we have a very, we'll say, a very great community in the fraud space, but what makes it great in the gaming space is that there's not many of us. And so we really want to like, support, obviously, the growth of the industry and the growth of it in a way that's meaningful. But at the same time, like fraud, and we'll say fraud in itself is a common discussion point. And it collaboration, being able to collaborate with companies that do offer fraud prevention solutions is really something we pride ourselves on because we want to give them the ability to really, you know, innovate and really bring in that innovation that I think, you know, this industry can use. I think bringing, we'll say something unique to someone like a solution provider that can help them change the way they think about it and very well provide a solution that really, I think could very well benefit the gaming industry as a whole. And more so than that, I think when it comes to regulations, I also think over time it's gonna be a lot more different than it is five years ago. So so what you may know today, what I may know today may obviously change over time. And I think it's important for companies that are looking at in the space or are in the space, really just keep themselves up to date.
0: I think that is a blessing and a curse. It's like a good thing and a like a pro and a con of being a fraud fighter, right, is having to continually update our knowledge and information. And those of us who love it, we enjoy the fact that it changes often. But at the same time, it sometimes it can be a lot of change at once and adding the traditional amount of learning that you need to have as a fraud fighter and then adding that with gaming and compliance and different business models and regulations and all of that, I'm sure it adds an added complexity, but also A little bit of the fun too, because you can see things change and grow. Just as we, you know, finish out for fraud fighters who may be interested in going into this vertical, what advice do you have? How can they stay up to date on that information? Are there any certifications that are helpful? Or, I mean, I always say that certifications won't actually get you in the door for a job in fraud, but I know for gaming it could be different. So, just what what advice do you have when people say, "Oh, I'm applying for a gaming position in gambling because." There's more openings or I'm really intrigued by it and I want to learn more.
1: Well, yeah, I think in the case of certifications, I mean, there's obviously not a certification that would relate to obviously gaming in terms of fraud. But I will say, I think the biggest tips that I would give really is around if you're an investigator, if you're curious, if you love seeing something different, if you love obviously catching bad guys, as I would say. I really think that the passion and the attitude of someone that's looking to really be an investigator and it may be their first step into it or possibly a change in industry of like maybe a traditional financial institution, working for like their financial crimes, or we'll call it even like investigations teams. And so I think it's really down to those two things. I think, Also, when it comes to the, you know, the elements, you're really interacting with customers that are trying to have fun, where I think there's also going to be a level of, of, we'll say, thrill that comes with it. And I think it's really important to say, being able to understand the games, understand the play, and and for folks that are obviously not playing on a site, or not at the casino, or or not, we'll say, entering to the contest. I still think that there needs to always be some understanding of the product. So get familiar with the product. So sign up for a website, sign up for you know an app, and really just start to play and really just try to understand how you can actually commit fraud. Because again, when it comes to fraud prevention in the gambling space, there's so many moving parts and there's just so much We'll say, we'll call it the blind spots. We'll call it even like the needle in the haystack that could really determine whether something is obviously fraudulent. Line. And I've always had fun doing it. And the folks that I've worked with in the past, we've always had you know a great time, obviously doing things to really prevent fraud and protecting the business.
0: I think that is such great advice and I am really actually excited and I don't mean this in a cheesy way, but I'm excited to see where your career continues to go because even if you kind of fell into it by accident, not intentionally, you really have had a front row seat too. The gaming space being able to grow and now you're somebody who other gaming companies are contacting to ask for advice on how to do things. And that's a relatively short amount of time, right? You've got four promotions in the last three years when you were at DraftKings. And before that, you were at Bwin.party for I think a year, year and a half. So like in about five years, you've become an expert and a veteran in this space, which is crazy in other industries, but not even... That's surprising in ours, but I'm looking forward to seeing where that takes you. And I'm also really glad that you now can talk more about it and and join at Furology now that you are no longer on the merchant side and have a little bit more freedom.
1: Thank you. And yeah, I mean, I think it's important to obviously continue the knowledge, sharing that knowledge. And I love, you know, obviously hearing like podcasts like ferology to really understand like what's going out there and what's happening. And, and I hope that this is obviously an opportunity. For folks that don't understand it, they can get a little bit more understanding but at the same time. It's really going to be exciting. I can't wait to see what five years looks like. I already see, we'll say, about almost the first five already in in the space uh, from obviously recent sports uh, wagering being legal, but just excited to see how it could take years. Currently, what I'm doing at Isler is obviously really supporting companies. So, you know, when it comes to this stuff, really just reaching out and just getting that education.
0: Absolutely. Well, Dominic, I appreciate your time and expertise. I'm going to make sure that the link to your LinkedIn is in the show notes as it was last week as well. And I really encourage people to reach out to you to learn more and possibly engage with Eilers and Krajek if, if wanting to do something more official. And just thanks so much to contributing to the industry and sharing some of your experiences today and last week. I really appreciate it.